it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Goldman Sachs. Get information about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy on the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Available now on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of April 11th, 2016. On this week's show, we'll be joined by New York Times golf writer Karen Kraus, who witnessed the meltdown in the Magnolias, the agony near Amen Corner, the Appomattox amid the Azaleas, the River of Tears at Ray's Creek, that is Jordan Spieth's back nine meltdown at the Masters, that handed the green jacket to a guy whose name I just had to double-check, Englishman Danny Willett. Then Chris Ballard of Sports Illustrated will come aboard to discuss the Golden State Warriors, a basketball team you may have heard of because we talked about them on last week's show, but on Sunday night, they tied the NBA record for most wins in a season and will go for the record at home against the Grizzlies of Memphis on Wednesday. Finally, baseball writer Jeff Passan of Yahoo will be with us to discuss his excellent new book, The Arm, about the epidemic of elbow injuries in the sport and the mystery about what to do about them. Our leader, Slate executive editor Josh Levine, is locked inside Butler Cabin, trying on all 44 tall green jackets. Joining me from New York is Mike Pesca, host of the Slate podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. Big news that we must address, Mike, Zelmo Beatty whom we, of course, remember every week in the yeah. credits of the show, was elected posthumously to the Basketball Hall of Fame. Big He's going Z's in. Going Big in. Z. That warms our hearts. I think we were a little bit responsible for that. I would, I'm going to give us, you know, the extra 2%. Let's say that we, we were responsible for the extra 2%. If you did a search on who's talking about Zelmo Beatty the most mm-hmm. vociferously and consistently, can you really, do you really get better than hang up and listen? I do have to say something, though. 
I don't know if the Battle of our Appomattox is a good analogy because there was the battle, but also it was the place of the, the this great is true. truce. Maybe Appomattox amid the azaleas was a stretch. Well, also you, also you have to go where the British defeat mm-hmm. the Americans. So maybe a Ticonderoga amongst yeah, that the would be fine. tulips. That would be I don't fine. know if there are tulips you know, Bob, there. Bob Ryan, can we get back to Zelmo for a second? Bob Ryan, I got a beef with Bob Ryan. He yes. wrote over the weekend that Zelmo was a rock-solid 6'9 center for the NBA Hawks and Lakers plus the ABA Utah Stars. To me, he's a bit shy of Hall status. But hey, perhaps he's yeah. better than I thought. Come on, Bob Ryan. Well... Bob Ryan probably saw Zelmo Beatty play dozens of times. <laughs> we like, we the, like name the name. I, mean, the, I would defer to Bob Ryan. All right, a, uh, a note of warning about this show. It's going to be a little unusual because we rolled Mike's 120-sided die and came up with a panelist groupings for the segments. It'll be just me and the guest for the Masters. Then it'll be me and Mike for the Warriors. And then it'll be Josh and me for the Arm. And then it'll be all three of us to answer some of your call-in questions. So there will be no afterballs this week. Warning, no afterballs. And the reason for this mishmash show is because we live full lives. Right, Mike? Josh is off writing. I consider this show the Pyramid of Stefan, where we start with just Stefan, and then we add mm-hmm. a person to Stefan, see how that goes, add someone else to Stefan, and then all three of us, which really is yeah. Stefan and the other two. So this is just the building block of Stefan. At big weekends we had, which also accounts for our, uh, our mishmash show, I was at Gillette Stadium in Foxborough, Massachusetts, Mike. Yeah, Coaching a couple dozen kids at the National School Scrabble Championship, I am proud to announce here, breaking news, that my daughter and her partner finished with a six and one record, wow. fourth place out of 85 teams. They won $1,000. They made a couple of really amazing plays. They played anti-gay. What? Yes, anti-gay. They, in one they, and, they in uh, the state of North Carolina. Carolina, I know. Yeah. It was sort of very topical. Anti-gay. Good news, yeah. current events. Good current events lesson for the kids. And in another game, they played Moviola. Yeah. M-O-V-I-E-O-L-A. That is a very high, hard Scrabble I, find. I, I know Scrabble's supposed to be amoral, but is there a teachable moment in the amorality of anti-gay? Absolutely. Do you have to sure. take, take them aside and say, look. I'm going to make, make Chloe, my daughter, and her partner submit a, uh, a report about yeah. uh, North Carolina. You had a busy weekend, too. Yeah, mine was more sports-oriented. Uh, an Olympic sport, the sport of trampolining, was pursued. It was more of a birthday, ninth birthday context. Mm-hmm. I rented a van. I drove 12, no, I drove 13, eight, nine-year-olds. There you go, 13, eight, nine-year-olds from Manhattan to Long Island and back. More wow. details there are no on my show, The Gist. More details on The Gist? Well, we'll just have to listen there then. All right, a couple of announcements, Mike. <laughs> uh, our live show in D.C. is just two weeks away. It is at the William Mammoth Theater. It'll be on Monday evening, April 25th, and we are excited about our special guest, Ali Krieger of the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team and the Washington Spirit. There are a couple of other Slate live shows that we're going to plug, A Year of Great Books, a conversation about Jane Eyre featuring Slate's Laura Miller and Slate Group Editor-in-Chief Jacob Weisberg. They will be in conversation about Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. That's this Wednesday in New York. And the esteemed Political Gab Fest will be in Atlanta on April 27th. For tickets to any of these shows, but especially ours, please go to slate.com slash live. On our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll answer another one of your call-in questions about the new design of the U.S. national soccer team uniforms and memories 
of the men's 1994 kits. To hear this bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and various other Slate shows, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. You can get a free two-week trial at slate.com slash hangupplus. Last year at golf's Potemkin Village, the Augusta National Golf Club, precocious 21-year-old Texan Jordan Spieth led wire to wire and won the Masters in a record-tying 270 strokes, four fewer than the guys in second place. On Sunday, Spieth led by five strokes with nine holes to play, and then he went bogey, bogey, quadruple bogey, the last eight, two balls in the water, seven-shot disaster on the historically heartbreaking par 3 12th hole. Afterward, a reporter asked Spieth how disappointing it was. Here's what he said. Would you be disappointed? I would yeah. massively, I have to say. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's a tough one. You, you set such high standards for yourself. Yeah, sure. And, um, you know, I knew it was the lead was five with um, nine holes to play. And I knew that those two bogeys weren't going to hurt me, but I, I didn't take that extra deep breath and really focus on my line on 12. Instead, I went up and I just put a quick swing on it. Karen Krause covers golf for the New York Times. She was at Augusta covering the Masters, and she joins us now. Karen, thank you. My pleasure. Uh, were you actually on uh, hole number 12 for uh, Jordan Spieth's water ballet? I wasn't because after following him in the front nine, I had this mistaken impression that he had the tournament in hand. And because I had a very arduous deadline, I thought I was going to be really smart and go back in the room and start writing. And I had about 500 words of lovely prose about how, unlike last year, he did not have his best game, especially his ball striking and especially his irons, but he somehow, because of his wonderful short game and putting, found a way to win and become the first wire-to-wire consecutive winner in the 80 years Masters. Oh my God, you're like, you're now, you, now you've got one of those sports writer stories where, you know, I left it the press box to go to the locker room and I miss the unbelievable well, I also, Yeah, I was also in the elevator at Dodger Stadium um, when maybe one of the most famous home runs in his in playoff history was hit. So I do have a um, history of this, but um, meeting Kurt Gibson's, by the way. But yeah. anyway, so it all changed so quickly. It was funny to me and almost fitting because all week we had had these amazing gusts of wind. I was almost blown off my feet by a few of them, especially on Friday and Saturday. And so to have the tournament turn so quickly, it was almost like the biggest gust of wind in the whole week was this change of momentum when you had Jordan go bogey, bogey, quadruple bogey as Danny Willett is putting together this beautiful three under closing back nine. Even when Jordan bogeyed 10 and 11, I still wasn't thinking I was going to have to start all over because I thought, oh, well, you know, all this is doing is adding some drama to the final holes. I never thought he would hit not one but two balls in the water on 12. Right. Um, Spieth afterward talked about deciding when he was standing over the ball on the 12th tee to change his plans to hit a fade instead of a draw. You wrote that he paid dearly for his failure to commit to his original shot. What happened? I mean, mean, these guys are robotic in their swings. Do you have any idea why he changed his mind? Well, this goes back to the whole week. He had been 
struggling with his swing. So he did not have a, the utmost confidence in his irons. He had even had Cameron Cormick, his coach, come back yesterday to just kind of look at his swing on the practice range and work with him a little bit. So clearly there were some confidence issues with the swing, and that's what happens when you are lacking confidence with your swing. You tend to overthink. You tend to stand over the ball longer because you have all of these swing thoughts instead of just standing up and trusting your swing and trusting your strategy. And interestingly, he hit the exact same shot a fade, not a draw, in 2014 when he was paired with Bubba in the final round Bubba and Watson. contending, Bubba Watson that is, and hit the ball in the water there too. So you would have thought he would have remembered that and and if he had any doubts about what shot to play, would have thought, well, that fade didn't work out two years ago, so I'm going to stick with the draw. Well, he had, he had the thing like 20 yards short of where he wanted it to go. But when you are when you are struggling with your swing, it becomes as much mental as physical, right? You just have a very hard time trusting that the outcome will be what you want it to be. And so then maybe you are trying to guide the ball or you're just trying you are just not plain instinctive golf. And you noticed a lot of times he was backing off shots, especially mm-hmm. yesterday. And again, I think that is a consequence of not having complete faith in his swing because he was having a hard time seeing the lines. He was just having a hard time picturing the swing. So he would back away, try to get the line, go back and address the ball. I think it's all tied in. And I think incidents like this really show just how emotionally and intellectually difficult (laughs) it is for athletes to do what they have to do, that even someone like Jordan Spieth, who won the Masters at 18 under par in 2015, can be afflicted with the kind of mental turmoil. I mean, that's probably not too harsh a word given the circumstances. Um, Even, yeah, even even with a five-shot lead going into the final nine holes in a bid to win his second Masters, I totally agree. It shows you how fragile confidence is in any sport, but especially in this one where it's not a reactive sport where you are just reacting to the action on the field of play or you're in the flow. You're having to stand over a ball that is not moving on every shot. And I think it gives these players a lot of time to think, which is why so many of them, you know, get in their heads too much. I right. think it's maybe easier to be Stephen Curry and just running down the court and putting up those threes because he's in the flow of the action. He's not, yeah. I think the analogy would be a wide open three where you have time to think and set your feet and, and really, um, give thought to, oh, wow, I'm so open. This should be good. Right. Well, we tend to use the word unconscious to describe uh, athletes in motion, you know, but when we, but golf is so much more conscious um, than something like Steph Curry, which is a good analogy, sprinting and then weaving through the defense and then backpedaling to the three-point line and launching one. Um, Exactly. This is just so much more it's not more mental necessarily, but it's certainly there's that, that quiet that can devour you. Exactly. And it was interesting because 
even on nine, the microphones picked up um, this conversation that Jordan had with his caddy, Michael Griller. And Michael was actually, I think, trying to sort of get him to play a less aggressive shot. And and you could hear Jordan saying, I'm going with this shot. And he actually made a beautiful approach and made the birdie. But I think he said after 12, he turned to Michael and said, you know, buddy, we're kind of on the verge of collapsing here. I need some help to get going again. And this is when their partnership really works, that they have the ability to be that honest with each other. And Michael, as you know, was a former um, elementary school math and science teacher. And so he's used to trying to coax performances out of uh, <laughs> out of fragile people so i think that their collaboration was led to two birdies on the next three holes but they just that three hole stretch they had done themselves too big of a hole to get out of yeah. the rest of the way on a very tough back nine it was playing tough for everyone but danny willett and willett uh englishman I, I really, to be honest with you, had never really heard about of the guy before I saw that he had won he the Masters on Sunday night. He is number 12 in the world. He is number 12 in the world. Um, had a kid last week. Great little backstory. Um, yeah. And was part of this weirdness in Butler Cabin when Spieth uh, had to drag himself in there, be dragged in there to do the hokey Augusta uh, rich guy tradition of the the outgoing champion putting the green jacket on the incoming champion. I mean, Spieth looked like he was in shock. He almost tripped getting up out of his chair to put the jacket on Willett. He didn't shake Willett's right. hand, and then he took that awkward step backward and stared at the camera with those uh, Chris Christie zombie eyes. And he took a lot of grief on Twitter. Um, he did seem to. He came out later and was more composed, wasn't he? Well, I agree. In fact, I just. A file to follow story when I talk about how I thought he showed tremendous grace under very difficult circumstances. And it would be analogous to, let's say you're a single-term president, you lose the re-election bid, and then you have to, like, symbolically hand over the presidency to the person who beat you. Do you think anyone would show as much, you know, grace as Jordan did last night in that kind of situation it's so it was so awkward and it was funny because outside um afterward he met with a group of tv reporters and then print reporters and everyone was asking him about his round and i just to me the only question was what was that like in butler cabin so i finally was able to um you know shout the question out and he said i don't know that anyone had a more difficult butler cabin ceremony than i did when you know you're five up with nine holes to play and thinking that you're going to basically be putting your green jacket back on yourself and all of a sudden you're in this ceremony where you're having to acknowledge your collapse in this very public formal drawn out manner I, it, it's, it, it certainly requires a tremendous amount of dignity and grace that I think would be hard for any of us to muster given that level of failure. And that's what, to a golfer like Jordan Spieth, what happened on the back nine is failure. Um, he's right. not the first person to do this, obviously. Greg Norman gave away a six-stroke lead at the Masters in 1996. Arnold Palmer right. gave away a lead. Nicholas has given away. I mean, it's, it's not unique to this year, but it's because it's the, the current and the freshest and because Jordan Spieth 
is, of course, the, 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 the replacement in some ways, along with McElroy, Rory McElroy and others, f- for Tiger Woods, who didn't compete well, in the Masters this year. I think it also, part of it is that we had not seen any sinks in Jordan's armor to this point. Since the Masters last year, he had held the 54-hole lead five times and then won every time. So he had always looked so in control that this made the collapse seem doubly unfathomable. And here's what I would say, and gosh, from the mouths of babes, the 22-year-old, excuse me, amateur, Bryson DeChambeau said earlier in the week, well, you know, I don't look at failure as a bad thing. It's through failure that you learn how to succeed. And I think that's true in any walk of life but especially in athletics. And I think in many ways that back nine will be much more valuable for Jordan moving forward than his victory in Augusta was last year. Right. He's 22 years old. Um, He's 22. Right. right. And I think that the unfair comparison for an athlete like Jordan Spieth is that there was someone so remarkable at such a young age like Tiger Woods. And I think that adds to the pressure. I have a couple of short questions for you before we say goodbye. One is I didn't realize you don't get to keep your green jacket. You're, you're only borrowing the green jacket? So you get to keep it for the year of your reign. Right, for only and for the year. And you then have you gotta... to hand it over. You only get to wear it in the the week of the Masters. So so you give it back, they put it in the closet with your name on it, and then when you go back for that Masters dinner, you get to wear it, but you don't get to take it home and dry you clean do it not. yourself. And that was one of the more poignant things that Jordan said at the beginning of the week in his pre-tournament news conference was that as he was packing his green jacket, as he was getting ready to go to Austin and Houston and then to Augusta, he thought to himself, wow, this jacket may never hang in my closet again. I bet that, you know, he's only 22. He should have been thinking, I'm going to win six of these. Maybe <laughs> well, that's so an indication Tiger, of his mental state. Three, and so. Tiger only won three. All right, here's my last question for you. It is hard to come up with new ways to describe hitting golf balls. And you wrote in your, uh, in your, in your story for the New York Times on Monday morning that the winds on Saturday baked the greens so it was like putting on buttered crusts. And I really liked that, and I commend you for Thank finding you. a new way to describe striking a little white ball. How did you come up Thank with buttered you. crust? Take us inside the writer's well, mind. I was thinking, okay, you had the winds, and it was pretty cold yesterday, so the, the winds alone were baking you know, kind of like making the greens especially crusty. So then I was thinking of bread crust, but then it dawned on me that the greens are also so slick. So I was thinking, okay, well, if crusts were slick, well, they would be buttered. <laughs> it is really, as you know only too well, the, the mind works in mysterious ways, especially <laughs> under a deadline duress. Well, we can take buttered crust off of the list of ways to describe a, a pattern green, <laughs> and I think it's probably just fine. We'll move on to some new, new ways to describe it. Uh, Karen Krause, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Karen Krause covers golf for The New York Times. On Sunday night in San Antonio, Texas, the Golden State Warriors 
triggered a tsunami of hot takes by defeating the San Antonio Spurs 92-86 to for their 72nd win against nine losses. It was the Warriors' second win over their Western Conference rival in a week, and it, of course, tied the 1995-96 Chicago Bulls mark for most victories in an NBA regular season. Golden State's quest for the record comes down to its last game on Wednesday at home against Memphis. By the post-game reactions and later the words of the Warriors players, they really want to set the record, and why the hell not? Chris Ballard of Sports Illustrated lives in the Bay Area, which has made him the go-to guy for all things Warriors. He was in San Antonio for last night's game, and he joins us now. Hey, Chris. Hey, guys. On SI.com this morning, Chris, you wrote that after his ridiculous 37-point performance last night, which included a three-quarter court chuck, to beat the buzzer at the end of a quarter that was waved off. Stephen Curry hugged the ball, pounded it, kept it close, even as he embraced Draymond Green and leapt to shoulder bump Maurice Spates and dapped everyone in sight down to the team's director of social media. Even the director of social media. In these analytical eyes on the ultimate prize times, there's probably an argument to be made that resting and not risking injury to Curry and Green and Clay Thompson would better serve the run to a repeat NBA championship. But the Warriors are going for this. They're kind of saying, what the fuck? Let's do this crazy thing. <laughs> yeah, you don't blame them. They're so young, relatively early in their careers, the people making the, the push here, which is really, it's been Draymond and Steph. Who really pushed forward. Clay plays all right with it. Iguodala's agnostic, I would say. But they sense this chance. I think part of it stems from Curry's long-held belief that he's been underrated at every step of his career, you know, from high school to, to Davidson and, and, you know, a well, well-told story. But uh, Draymond feels the same way. And I think all the comments from Scottie Pippen and Ron Harper and Oscar Robertson and everyone uh, downplaying the Warriors' success this season has made them that more determined with this. Uh, and, you know, I was watching them saying they looked tired, especially at Memphis Saturday night. But the way Steph played last night, I think it elevates him in our general pantheon of <laughs> ultimate competitors. A different kind of competitor than, than MJ or, or Kobe. But uh, the way that he played that game, especially in the second half, was something to watch. So, I mean, if they decided, oh, who cares about the record? We've got to win the championship, which they have decided. I mean, obviously the record's nice, but the championship, uh, uh, the repeat's the most important thing. How much would they have done differently? We would have talked about what? 10 minutes in the Memphis game, uh, 12 minutes, you know, guys getting a few more minutes rest. It's really not that big a sacrifice. No, I I think the biggest part would be injury risk, of course. You know, you're going back-to-back. They got in at 2 a.m. in in San Antonio after flying from Memphis, uh, you're getting up, and then you're going you're gonna to play Curry. And Curry's not going to do what he would in different situations, which is play, you know, maybe medium speed. You know, Curry went all out, looking for contact in some cases, taking contact. Those are the plays where arguably, you know, you might turn an ankle, you might do something that puts you out leading to the playoffs. Personally, I'm of the mind that you know, the last thing you want to do is get a team feeling soft before the playoffs, so to come in, uh, playing at a playoff intensity is not the worst thing in the world. And they were showing some signs of fatigue. I mean, they lost to Boston and Minnesota in the last 10 days. Yeah, and I don't know if that was fatigue as much as uh, losing focus, you know, especially with Minnesota, you know, looking ahead a little bit. You know, you talk to the players, and they're, they're just ready for the postseason to start because 
it's hard to look at from the outside, but if you go to a Warriors practice or a game, the media and fan crush is remarkable, unlike anything I've seen in the NBA. I wasn't there in 95, 96 with the Bulls, but from what I understand, it's, it's pretty similar. Uh, but they're just, every day, the, the demands on their time, you know, and Seth has been in situations where, you know, his security guy, Ralph Walker, told me you know, they literally had to run through the back of a department store in Toronto to escape a crush of fans who were going to mob them. So, you know, you, you factor that in, I think there is a certain... Just let's get to it. You know, we're ready. They really are like the Beatles. You know, I could hear Can't Buy Me Love playing in the background, and then they cut to <laughs> clever comments that Clay or Draymond, especially, or Steph says, What do you call your haircut, George? I, I was thinking, though, the loss against the overtime loss against Minneapolis. Now, Kerr was beside himself. He said they were sloppy. He said that they, you know, t- made bad decisions. But this is a team that takes shots that everyone else in the history of the NBA would be called a bad shot. It's a good shot. And as far as the passing, especially with Curry, sometimes it looks sloppy or risk taking, but it's actually on the money. Do they know? There, there is certainly some assists or attempted assists they make that go over a guy's head and they know they did wrong. But do they know exactly when they've made a bad decision? Do they know when they've taken a bad shot? Or do they know when the 35-footer is just a good shot that they happen to miss? You know, I think there's two sets of rules. Uh, and Kurt has said this before. <laughs> there's a set of rules that are for Steph and to a certain extent Clay, And there's a set of rules for everybody else. So yeah, I mean, that's what happened earlier in the season where you saw when Luke Walton was coach, Draymond Green was shooting I think roughly twice as many three pointers as he is now. Mm-hmm. And when Kerr came back in, he said, "All right, let's tone down the you know, the Draymond stepping into eight threes a game." So all those players are aware of it, especially the Pappy. And I think that's still you know as good as Steph is. That's still his main weakness is that he's careless with the ball sometimes. You know, Bruce Frazier, who's one of the assistant coaches who works with Steph, said earlier in the season, you know, they actually spent time working on just shooting off a quick dribble handle because Steph was starting to lose it in those situations. So I would say that the turnovers are going to be, if there's something that bites them, it's going to be turnovers, and that often comes from trying to make too pretty of a pass. You know, you see people fall prey to this a lot if you go to your local YMCA or rec league game and, and someone's trying to thread that three-quarter court one-hander just because it would look good, right? And that's number one. Number two is the defense. When they don't uh, lock in on defense, that's when they tend to lose games. You know, forget all the 35 footers. You know, you can't expect Steph to do that every game and bail you out. But they played great defense last night, and that, the takeaway that I got in the locker rooms afterwards uh, was the Spurs were impressed by the defense. This wasn't some fluky Steph night, and the Warriors were very pleased with their defense. Chris, how much of this uh, could be Jedi mind games by Greg Popovich, the head coach of the Spurs? Uh, the Warriors have beaten them twice in the last week. Has he just said, you know, let them have the record and home court advantage, and we will settle this in the conference finals? You know, it, it's that's the big question, right? And, uh, there's this mystique about Pop that he's operating at another level than the rest of us, uh, which partly may be true. But you, know, you look at some of his rotations last night. He had Tony Parker and Patty Mills playing together, which defensively just doesn't make sense because Clay Thompson could just back down one or the other and shoot right over him. Right. Uh, he started a lineup in the fourth quarter that hadn't played together, as far as I could tell, the entire season. And so, you know, is there some rope with dope? I mean, most important, Boris Diaw who's a solid player, but especially against the Warriors, fills an ability to go small with a, a post guy like Draymond. As far as he had, he didn't play either of those games. Pop definitely wanted the game. There's no question about that. All you had to do was watch him uh, berating Danny Green and then Monty McCutcheon to see the, uh, the fire there. But 
I don't think he was going to show his hand. If anything, he wanted to try to confuse the Warriors. I think he wanted to win and do that. If the Warriors didn't exist this year, you've seen so much NBA. Where would you be putting the Spurs? Not only in terms of they'd definitely be the best team in the NBA. Would you be talking about maybe they're one of the 10 best teams in NBA history? Uh, assuming they'd have gone undefeated at home, right? Without the Warriors to beat them, remember, in my hypothetical. How great would this year's Spurs team be? It would be such a bizarre season otherwise, right? I mean, just a tangent for a second. Look at Russell Westbrook. Yeah. You know, the guy's averaging a near triple double and he might not get a single MVP vote. Right. That's the thing. There's uh, no one right. saying, there's no one saying, oh, he's in the conversation for MVP, that old saw. The question is, will he get an MVP vote? Exactly. Vote. Yeah. 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 You know, Carl Anthony Towns, I can't remember a rookie who came in. He looks basically like a, a young, more expressive Tim Duncan. Uh, and we haven't talked about the guy very much at all. Uh, so everything has been sucked up into this Warriors black hole of attention. And it's really hard to gauge where the Spurs would be. You know, obviously they'd be undervalued because of the Spurs and because they're not especially exciting to watch. And even the style of play of everyone outside of maybe Kawhi is, is sort of, you know, workmanlike, all the usual stereotypes. Yeah, the record would be impressive. I don't think we would be venerating them at the level that we are with the Warriors, though. But it's not just the record. It's the sort of confluence of all things, media, fan attention, one brilliant player. Steve Kerr is a great guy to cover. This seems like a fun team to be around and a fun storyline to be following. No question. I mean, from, from my perspective, from our perspective in the media, this is certainly once in a lifetime that you're going to get a, a group of guys like this. I mean, Draymond Green's one of the five best athlete quotes covered, you know, he's Charles Barkley level as, as far as that. Um, Steph is, you know, for a guy with that many demands on his time, is remarkable about doing it. Kerr is legitimately insightful and funny and kind. He's the kind of guy you'll do a 15-minute interview, and then he'll just want to talk for 15 or 20 minutes and catch up, uh, which is exceedingly rare to retain your humanity in a world like this, you know, Bob Myers, their GM, is also likable and thoughtful. I mean, Joe Lacob is uh, the other way. There's a little bit of a hubris and perhaps some narcissism there. But outside that, in the organization, it's just immensely likable guys. It's hard not to cheer for them. I know with my mom, who's in her late 70s, she has friends who are professors at Guilford College who never really cared about basketball who suddenly are watching the Warriors because of Steph. Look, I just want to point out that in terms of margin of victory, the Spurs are better than the Warriors. In terms of their Pythag expected win-loss, the Spurs should be better than the Warriors. Of course, nothing about the Warriors should be. Do you think in the playoffs, Chris, the fact that teams get to see the Warriors, hey, if they're good five, six, seven times, will that hurt the Warriors or do they just become more confounding? Or you could also say, even if that hurts the Warriors a little bit, the fact that they won't have this outrageous travel schedule, that will be such a benefit that it more than evens out. Kerr was asked about the last night post-game if the travel schedule, he thought it affected the team at all. And I don't think he was lying about this, but he said, no, he didn't think the travel schedule affected them. Well, I think they are one of those teams that, that really focuses on getting rest and sometimes you just take off a practice. So I don't think the travel will be an issue. But I do think you can maybe get two bad shooting games from the Warriors in a series. And we saw this last season you know, against the Cavs where Steph and Clay both are off, especially Steph, right? But I think the advantage for the Warriors is in seven games, you know, you're just not going to be able to keep them down no matter how good you are defensively. And the Spurs did it for a half last night. And that was a great first half defensively for them. And that's all they could manage. So 
the ability of the Warriors to have seven games to play with, they can have a stinker and then keep going. 538.com last week, Chris, uh, compiled a uh, analysis of the best ELO rating for NBA teams. The Warriors was the second highest to the 95-96 Bulls. Is this the, the dumbest conversation ever or just a dumb conversation <laughs> about who's better? And are the 96 Bulls, the 1972 Dolphins, Miami Dolphins rooting against the Warriors to uh, to, to break their I know one guy from that Bulls team who's not rooting against them. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. Well, hey, it's funny. One of the questions last night is, uh, you know, since your coaches to Steph, do you think coach is rooting for you to break the record, and Steph said he'd better be. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting, actually, after last night's game, finally, I saw that both Pippen and Harper on Twitter sent out congratulatory notes, suddenly changing their, their public tack and, and uh, saying the Warriors deserve it. So, uh, who knows? But it, to me, I think the Dolphins analogy is perfect. You know, these are the, the grumpy-ish old guys who have long burnished their own legend, uh, and I think it's something about the Warriors that people don't want to validate. You know, they're just particularly easy to dismiss, and that goes back to the stereotype, you know, the, the Barclay stereotype of jump-shooting teams. If this were a LeBron-led team, I don't think we'd have the same issues. But you remember, they said the same thing about the Bulls. They said that they were benefiting from this style of basketball that wasn't real basketball, and in fact, it wasn't aesthetically pleasing basketball, but the Big O would talk about how there's a foul on every play and how, you know, people can't make jump shots and how they're so dependent on one guy. No matter who's good, someone from the past is going to come along to try to knock you down. Of course, and that's why I think it's, it's more interesting to know people like Allen Iverson who have been immediately saying, these guys are, are really good. I give them all, all the credit. They deserve it. Because, you know, on a realistic standpoint, if we factor in conditioning and training and all the other advances in sports over the last 30 years, uh, it's going to be a different game. Coaching, analytics, all those advantages the Warriors have tilt their way, and the Bulls have, you know, Jordan and Pippen and Rodman. And so I'll be very curious to see the response on Wednesday of MJ. Draymond said, the All-Star game, he said that, that Michael told him to go get the record and he'd be disappointed if Draymond didn't. That's really hard for me to believe that Michael would truly believe that. <laughs> right, I could see he's saying that to play a mind game, but not believing it. Yeah, just go out, yeah. no problem, yeah. Draymond. All you got to do is break the record. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, Chris Ballard is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. He joined us from the airport in San Antonio where he watched the Golden State Warriors tie the NBA record for most wins in a season. I assume you'll be at the game on Wednesday night. Indeed, indeed. I didn't actually watch the uh, first Warriors game from the airport, so that would have been an interesting experience. (laughs) Excellent correction, Chris. Thank you for being our grammatical conscience here. Chris, thanks a lot. Thank you, guys. And now, through the magic of recording, I'm going to throw it to Josh for our final segment. Major League Baseball spends $1.5 billion annually on pitcher salaries and loses a half a billion dollars each year due to pitcher injuries. More than 50% of major league pitchers end up on the disabled list each year, and one quarter of major league pitchers, one quarter, it's amazing, have had Tommy John surgery. There were 30 of those surgeries in 2015, around the same number in 2014. I hesitate to even guess how many there will be in 2016. Uh, 30, the numbers would would (laughs) indicate. You know what? 
That's why you're a scientist and I'm not. Jeff Passan and his new book, The Arm, Inside the Billion Dollar Mystery of the Most Valuable Thing in Sports, tells the history of Tommy John surgery and tries to solve the mystery of why pitchers' arms keep getting hurt and why Major League Baseball hasn't figured out how to fix it. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Did you just do that history and mystery rhyme intentionally, or are you just like (laughs) that awesome? There's just poetry in my voice, man. Uh, (laughs) I appreciate you for pointing that out. So um, before we started rolling, I was asking you for the Mount Rushmore of Tommy John surgery recipients. And you said Harvey, Matt Harvey, Steven Strasburg, Jose Fernandez, and Tommy John himself. I also had written down Adam Wainwright and you, Darvish. but the And John Smoltz. Yeah, John Smoltz, too. The takeaway here is that a lot of guys that people have heard of have had the surgery. It does not seem to be abating. And at this point, it seems like you can come back from the surgery and have a successful career. But as you kind of argue in the book, that's led Major League Baseball to like not really figure out why the surgery is necessary. Like it works, so let's just keep doing it. Yeah, and I think it's lulled a lot of people into a false sense of security because the success of the surgery ultimately ends up making you think, okay, uh, you know, I think Freddie Gonzalez said it's like a root canal. And I suppose in that it fixes you, it's like that. But the greatest predictor of a future arm injury is a past arm injury. So, you know, the best prospect, pitching prospect in baseball is Lucas Giolito. And Lucas Giolito had Tommy John surgery when he was 18, I believe. And so the prospects of him having a long and sustained career are far, far less likely. And that's the issue right now, that you've got a generation of kids coming up Uh, a lot of whom have had this surgery, and their careers may ultimately end up shortened because of it, and that's bad for Major League Baseball when its youth feeder system is feeding it, you know, damaged goods. You spent a lot of time inside the youth feeder system in reporting the book, Jeff, and you followed two kids in particular, Riley Pint and Tony Molina, and the overwhelming sensation you get from your reporting and your description of their baseball lives is... Like, holy shit, these kids are not going to survive. They pitch too much. They throw too much. They travel the country going to tournaments. They are begged to pitch by various showcase coordinators and travel team coaches. It feels like the whole thing is unsustainable for a lot of these top prospects. It is. And Riley and Tony had different paths. I mean, Tony has been throwing in the mid-90s since, like, he was 15 or 16 years old. And he's been going to, to showcase events. He, he's been to 27 showcase events now. And showcases, for those who aren't familiar, are events where you go and scouts are there because it's usually the best versus the best. And it, rather than just watching your high school competition, they want to see you pitching against the best. And so the scouts are sitting there with their radar guns and you want to throw as hard as you possibly freaking can, because if you pop a 92 and 94 and 95, there's a chance you might get drafted or you might get a college scholarship out of it. And so the incentives to throw harder are much higher. And the harder you throw, the likelier you are to get hurt. Uh, Riley Pint took a, an opposite path. He 
went to his first showcase as a junior in high school, and he played basketball in the offseason, so he wasn't a single sports specialist. And I got a text uh, earlier this week from a general manager with a top 10 pick uh, who had a scout at Riley's first start. There were 75 scouts there. Riley was 96 to 100 with a major league ready curveball right now, and his changeup was 90 miles per hour. And the scout said he will not get out of the top five picks. So Riley Pines is going to be filthy freaking rich come this June. And that is what everybody wants to be. And the problem is not everybody can be Riley Pines. And that's, that is what baseball needs to start telling people. You are not special. The chances of you being special are infinitesimal. So stop trying to act like you are. With Riley Pint, it feels like the family and his coaches managed him appropriately to get to this point. Whether or not he has a major league career, who the hell knows? He could go to the yeah. mound tomorrow and feel something pop in his elbow. That's exactly right. And that's the, like, that's the overwhelming thing I took away from this book is, and Theo Epstein uh, says it perfectly, we don't know shit. Honestly, we still don't. And that's, that's what compelled me to write this. How can an industry that prides itself on efficiency be so inefficient with something that it spends a billion and a half dollars on every year? One of the top general manager shit quotes, along with our shit doesn't work in the playoffs. That's now, that's now in the top two. Um, <laughs> one of the major league players that you follow is Todd Coffey. And you're actually in the operating room as he's getting the surgery and the thing that struck me in that scene. And it's, it's awesome. It's really vividly written and you get a sense that, you know, you've probably never had before as a reader of what actually goes into the surgery. It just goes to show you like what a quote unquote routine surgery looks like in, uh, in practice and how like crazily non-routine it is. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Like I've been doing this for 17 or 18 years now. And the four hours in the operating room were, I think the coolest four hours I've ever spent reporting. And I'm lucky I'm the son of a nurse and I'm married to a nurse. And so I think I don't get queasy very easily. And just seeing the, the mechanics of this and the brilliance of Neil Elitrosh, who's the doctor who did this surgery and the way his team works, it's, symphonic. I mean, it's beautiful to watch them do this. And it's this grisly thing where they're cutting into a man's elbow and then cutting into his leg to try and get a tendon. And when that doesn't work, they're using a a piece of a cadaver from a a guy who died in a car accident. And then it's too big and they have to shave it down. I I mean, all of the little things that go into fixing our body, uh, you just don't realize. And it gave me such an appreciation for the art uh, that is surgery. Well, I think narratively what it helped do is dispel the notion that this is routine, that fans might have like, oh, he's just having Tommy John surgery. What's the big deal? He'll be back. Yeah, and it's one of the big points of this book, and one of the things I want people to take away from it is we hear that a guy needs Tommy John surgery, and we know the date that he's going to come back. There are usually about four to 500 days in between, and those four to 500 days are what make the man far more than the day of the surgery and the day that he comes back. And, and you know, in following Coffee and Daniel Hudson, both of whom had far longer than four and 500 day recovery periods, that's what I wanted to show just what life is like for somebody who has his livelihood taken away from him and is fighting like hell to get it back. 
So the fundamental issue here, one of the fundamental issues as far as how this is treated at the major league level is the sense by teams, the perception that if they figure something out here about how to keep pitchers healthy, then that's a secret that they want to keep to themselves. Um, That is bad. (laughs) That's not going to get this uh, problem solved. And so is that changing at all? And if so, how? And if not, how could it change? It's not changing. I'm not going to call this like one of the sadder parts of reporting this book or disappointing because it was a person looking out for himself. But uh, about 18 months ago or so, I got an email from somebody named Kyle Bodie, who uh, I think is is really on the forefront of doing interesting things uh, with regards to the arm. And there's a whole chapter on him. And he said, I have found somebody who is a genius. And to hear Kyle say this, Kyle might be the most arrogant person I've ever met. And so to hear him call somebody else a genius, well, I'm like, okay, I need to see what this guy is doing. And it was a doctoral student at Northwestern named James Buffy. And what Dr. Buffy had done was essentially taken a backward approach in looking at how the muscles in the arm stabilize the ligament in the elbow. I mean, this was potentially groundbreaking research. And then he got hired by the doctors. <laughs> and it's like, of course he's going to go work for the Dodgers. They're going to pay him well. They're going to give him everything he needs. They're going to try and solve this thing themselves, and he's going to be part of a great team. But it was sad because all of the information is going to be siloed. So and isn't this something the commissioner's office could do something about? Yes, they, they should have hired him, and they should be hiring other bright minds in the industry. And, and one of the arguments I make at the end is that there should be a think tank funded by Major League Baseball uh, to look into not just this, but performance and health and sleep patterns and everything. And I think that if there were a think tank, and uh, whether it's players who are toward the tail end of their careers, players who might just be on the cusp of being in organizations but not quite there, if you could really truly study this and dispatch the best minds, I feel like baseball writ large, would have a far better shot at handling this and not losing the hundreds of millions of dollars every year that it does to these problems. But something changed at some point in history. Obviously, pitchers were getting hurt in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, and fans just didn't know about it because doctors didn't know about it and reporters didn't know what to ask. And it was always, you know, arm soreness, forced them to retire, whatever. And yet in all of that time there remains a lot of arbitrariness to all of this. Pitch counts, which Uh have been so embraced over the last decade and a half and are so much a part of development, turn out to be not predictive of injury at all. Um, There's no real science to rehab routines, according to your reporting in the book. So what are major league organizations running on when they make the kinds of decisions that they make? And and, And I loved how you got to be inside the courting of John Lester, who ended up with a $155 million contract from the Chicago Cubs, because it reflects the throw it against the wall and, you know, just flip a coin and let's hope Lester's okay. Yeah. And that's, you know, Theo Epstein at the end of the chapter says something to the effect of, I dread every time our trainer's name pops up on our phone because I'm worried he might say Lester felt something in his elbow. Lester felt something in his shoulder, or Arietta's hurt. So, uh, so what do you feel we've learned at this point in the arc of the arm? 
what we're doing is not right. <laughs> and you know what? When I when I started this, I was hopeful that I was going to stumble upon some sort of grand solution. And if I had done that, I probably would not have written this book. I probably would have been hired by an organization that would have paid millions of dollars for it. And there is a solution out there. I, I do believe that. It's not going to end arm injuries because the, the one mitigating factor here is that velocity correlates so highly uh, with increased risk for arm injury. And velocity is not going anywhere because it works. And, and that is that is a fundamental truth in baseball. The harder you throw, the better you are. It's not always that way. You have guys who don't throw hard but are still effective. But generally speaking, if you throw harder, you can be better. And getting rid of that is going to be really difficult. I, I think so much of what baseball can do, though, starts with youth and starts with pairing back and being responsible. I do think pitch counts work for kids. I think when you're an adult, it's a little bit different, and uh, the damage may already be there, and there's nothing you can do. You're a ticking time bomb at that point. But I know my kid, he's eight years old. He's starting kid pitch this year. I'm the pitching coach on our team. Nobody's <laughs> going to be throwing more than an inning, and nobody's going to be throwing more than 30 pitches, and we play once a week. And that's going to be – I'm not going to increase that very much next year or the year after or the year after that because they're still kids. And they don't need to be throwing a lot right now. They just don't. All right, Jeff. Um, I'd just be curious, like, for a quick story from you, just, like, something that popped out from your reporting. Um, you know, you s spent time with a lot of different players. Like, what was the kind of most interesting perspective that you got from a guy who'd gone through this surgery? Like, was there a great kind of description of what the experience was like? I think Daniel Hudson's story is really going to – speak to people because here he is 11 months and change removed from Tommy John surgery a month out from being back with the Diamondbacks he was uh, a 16 win pitcher the season before you know borderline all-star guy young has his whole career ahead of him and uh, the second inning he's back uh, his elbow tightens up and he texts me and he says I had to come out of the game arm feels like shit and I went to the bar with him that night back at the hotel, and I don't know if I've felt as helpless being with someone as I was with him that night, because he's he's a really good person, and you wanted to tell him everything was going to be okay, but you also don't want to sugarcoat what the reality might be. And, and so him coming back and struggling through just doing the same thing again. Like the monotony of Tommy John recovery is bad enough as it is. To do it twice back-to-back, -back, though, it really, I think, tested his patience and his will and, and, and reinforced his desire to be a baseball player and how much he actually loved this game, that he was willing to do it two straight times. And Daniel Hudson did make it back to the majors in 2015. He pitched in 64 games last year, but as and, a reliever, and, and not threw, as a starter. Threw 100 miles per hour and, in and, and threw 100 miles per hour in September. Uh, Todd Coffey, one of your other main characters, did not has not made it back. No, and, and he's, uh, he's about to sign uh, with the Long Island Ducks, actually. Uh, so he, that is not a major league team, I think. Is that right? That is, that is not a major league team. I think more than anything, the theme of this book is stubbornness and what it can get you and how it can hinder you. And that goes for 
all of the entire baseball establishment uh, thinking that it knows what it's doing when it really doesn't. And it filters all the way down to uh, an individual like Todd Coffey, who's stubborn because he made his career despite so many people thinking he was never going to amount to anything. He was just a fat kid from North Carolina who had no business being on the field with them. But he stuck it out in the minor leagues. He made it. He bounced around for seven years in the big leagues, made a good career of it. And he's not going to let anybody dictate to him when his career ends. He still thinks he can be a major league pitcher, and damn it, he's going to go out there and try. Jeff Passan is a baseball columnist at Yahoo Sports. Uh, The book is called The Arm, Inside the Billion Dollar Mystery of the Most Valuable Thing in Sports. It's great. You should read it. Jeff, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Let me add, it is great. The reporting is great. (laughs) The writing is great. The storytelling is great. Congrats, Jeff. Checks in the mail, boys. Thank you very much. Now it is normally time for After Balls, but instead of us talking to you, we're going to talk with you, sort of. We asked you to phone us with questions for a call-in show. We recorded a bunch of answers to those questions, and we're going to share three of them with you now, another one in the bonus segment, and some more in the future. Our first question comes from Matt Lay of Boise, Idaho. My question is about Lance Armstrong, who started to run uh, trail races and ultramarathons recently. And the community seems split with many runners excited and even inspired by his appearance at events, while others, mostly more of the competitive guys, are against it based on his uh, doping history. So the sport doesn't have money to test, but many races are establishing policies which ban prior convicted dopers anyways. So the question is, in a sport in which a few can make a living from prize money and sponsorships, are races taking the right approach and should Lance be allowed to compete? Thank you very much. Look, at the huge risk, at the acknowledged risk of me not understanding the subculture or knowing all of the uh, facts about what the actual participants in ultramarathoning would say about this, some general principles are that there is such a thing, we should have such a thing as forgiveness, we should have such a thing as rehabilitation. And since there is no drug testing, that means Lance would have no way to prove that he's off drugs, although he did beat a lot of good drug tests in his day, didn't he? But still, to take this sport away, the highest uh, level of this sport, away from a guy who wants to participate in this sport as a form of rehabilitation, I don't know. It just seems a little bit extra punitive. That said, the guy who loses to Lance Armstrong, how could he not be pissed? And how could he not say, oh my God, we'll never know if he was taking drugs. Then again, this is the third then again, that guy could say that about anyone who beat him. So Lance Armstrong's ban by the US anti-doping agency, it actually prevented him from running in the Chicago Marathon in 2012, among other races. He is not allowed to participate in any event that's sanctioned by a governing body or federation that follows the rules of the World Anti-Doping Agency. So that includes like Ironman France. He tried to compete in an Ironman. It includes anything that's sanctioned by U.S. track and field. So Armstrong was basically venue shopping for a kind of event. For sports? For sports that allow would allow him to compete and is not being governed by the World Anti-Doping Agency. So the ultramarathoners kind of got the short end here. They were the ones that Lance Armstrong found that would kind of bring out his uh, competitive fire and also had the benefit of not being under world anti-doping rules. And you know what I say to that? 
That's fine. Like, it seems a little bit absurd, maybe a lot absurd, that Lance Armstrong is forbidden from competing in any kind of sport. And maybe it's actually right that he should have a hard time finding a place to compete. And when he finds one, then they should just be like, oh, well, we have to deal with this guy. Too bad. Or change your rules. Now follow the World Anti-Doping Code if you really don't want Lance Armstrong running 50 miles. In, having in, to run in, 50 in miles race. seems like a much worse punishment to me than being banned from, from running 50 miles. He had to find the sport, and he, he went the extra mile to find it. My solution would be you allow him to do an ultra marathon, but everyone else just has to do a marathon. So allow him to run the Chicago <laughs> Marathon, but when he finishes, gets the finish line, he has to turn around and head back. And then count his total time. No so drugs. No drugs a, are that good. So I'm looking at a story from Trail Runner Mag. Dot com. Lance Armstrong won the Woodside Ramble 35K, traversing 3,500 feet of elevation gain in three hours uh, and a little bit more. That's really impressive. It's not the course record, but, uh, you know, he seems like a pretty good ultra runner. Or he's venue shopping for races he can win to make him look good. I don't want to be too cynical about Lance Armstrong's Oh, how dare you be career. cynical about Lance Seriously. Armstrong? Seriously. I I mean, the the thing that always comes up with him is like, oh, you know, everybody was doing it. And we've talked about this so many times on the show. Just the way that he went about it, the way that he orchestrated the doping campaign, the way that he like sued people who told the truth about him. I think he deserves a kind of special place in anti-doping hell and being forced to run ultra marathons. I'll say it again. Punishment enough. He won by two minutes, almost two minutes. The Woodside Ramble. Congratulations, Lance Armstrong. Ramble. Thanks for the question, Matt. Here's our next caller. Hi, guys. Uh, this is Brian Setwitz from Shoreline, Washington. This question is uh, for my brother, Tom. He helped me come up with this one. Josh, Mike, Stefan, you guys are now the triumphant in charge of Major League Baseball. I want you to pick one, DH or no DH. Why? All right, thanks. Bye. So this is a question that only brothers could come up with. What brother is this, a against long brother. Long distance dedication. Shout out. This one's going out to my brother Tom. <laughs> I like feeling like Delilah. I just don't really get the opportunity to feel like Delilah that much in my life. Just want to say that there's somebody out there for you. Somebody who loves you. You're not alone. You We're all to here together more. tonight. A little more whispering. Talking about the yeah. DH. Yes. Or not the DH. Whatever your position is on the DH, Tom. <laughs> know that there's somebody that out there for you. A designated lover, per se. Mm. Um, what is your DH position, Mike? I feel like we've known each other for so long yeah. that I really should know this. But I and I feel like this could change our perceptions of one another. Yeah. This could be a deal breaker. Well, the DH is fine. It's just not letting pitchers hit stinks. So I'm against the DH. I also don't understand that the union is against it because, I, I mean, it doesn't make sense logically. If you eliminate one position, it's not as if, you know, American League teams have such higher salaries than National League teams because of the existence of the DH. It's not like the DH is such a well-compensated position. Like we think of, maybe we think of uh, David Ortiz as the DH. There are very few teams that have one dedicated DH and they're not 
extremely highly paid. Why is it logically assumed that you get rid of one old slugger and replace him with someone who's, you know, got a good glove and can play, that maybe that guy doesn't make up the slugger's money, but maybe some other position player, Juan Encarnacion, is playing the field, maybe he gets a $2 million raise. I don't understand the unions against it rule, except certain old guys who've gotten power in the union want to stay on as DH. But how often does that even happen? It seems like it's there are, what, seven full-time DHs where changing the game for these seven guys. And these are guys who've made, in the case of David Ortiz, $150 million in his career. Uh, the arguments for it, both on a practical and intellectual level, are kind of thin. So it is weird that there are different rules for the American League and the National League now that there's so much interleague play and the umpires are even for both leagues now. It's like everything is integrated except for this one rule which I think, I think it should actually stay split. Like I think it should, I don't think it should be like all DHs and, or no DHs. And I say that because it's really weird and doesn't make sense. And I think that in this age where we're imposing logic and reason on everything, we want everything to be replayed. We want to make sure everything is correct. All the calls are correct. Like this is one thing that if you're inventing a sport from scratch, there's no way that you would have this rule. And they're just very or few. Or baseball these... itself. <laughs> That's a great point. But we're, we're just kind of like gradually, you know, rounding off the corners, sanding off all the rough edges. And this is like a last kind of vestige that we can hold on to of something that doesn't make that much sense. And I agree that like seeing pitchers hit, it's like really dumb, but enjoyable. Like, do we really want to live in a world which Bartolo Colon doesn't prop that teeny tiny helmet on top of his head and flail around? Like that brings joy to my life. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not just that. That's not the big argument, I would say. I would say that it injects so much more strategy managerially for when you're going to lift them, when you're going to double shift. That's the big uh, plus of pitchers hitting. Yeah, except that in our sabermetrically ruled. Well, you're already, you've already lost the argument, but go ahead. World. <laughs> It doesn't make sense to have athletes who are so pathetic at what they do. It's the only example. And sure, you want to cling well, to that, Josh. Didn't you write Josh. a book on kickers? <laughs> Except kickers are really proficient at what they do. But and so are the designated hitters want to throw a touchdown. How is a designated hitter be, different right. from a designated kicker? No, it's not. It would be more like having – no, you're doing it backwards, Mike. Having pitchers bat is like having the kicker come out and play quarterback – for a down or a series every game. Great Some idea. of the kickers would be very good, actually. They're good athletes. That would have put a lot more strategy into the game. More strategy in the game. So Josh would like to see kickers play offensive line. They'd get hurt. You'd like to see that. That's why we watch football, right? Um, I think it makes no sense anymore to have pitchers bat. I mean, they're hopelessly pathetic at it. The vast majority of them don't work at this at all. There's a handful that do and like it, and were they were all good hitters when they were in high school and some in college if they went to college. But it's it's kind of embarrassing. Yeah, it's oh, fun to on. watch. It's silly it's to a, have these guys. It's a, it's a guaranteed out. Sure, it adds strategy, but after 40 years of the DH, what's the added value to the sport of having one out of nine hitters come up who can't actually hit? I agree with like 94% of what you said. It doesn't make any sense. I stipulated that it doesn't make any sense, but it's silly. Like that's a bad thing for baseball. Oh, we shouldn't have anything that's like funny and weird and entertaining. 
That would be horrible for our boring-ass sport. Oh, come uh, on. When is it entertaining? <laughs> Once every hundred at-bats no. for a pitcher? Like, pitchers typically bat, Mike, you, have, you uh, look this up for me. All right. I would say pitchers typically bat like 120, 150. Okay, so let's say something good happens for a team 15% of the time when a pitcher's up. 15% is not that low compared to we got rid of the, like, short extra point in the NFL because they're missing it like 2% of the time. So you're talking about like almost an order of magnitude difference, like seven and a half times more likely that in my back of the envelope calculation that something awesome will happen when a pitcher's up. And it can be even be entertaining when they strike out if it's Bartolo Colon. Yeah, look, uh, we only think that pitchers are pathetic at it because that's maybe compared to the regular position players. If we didn't know anything about baseball and we said, oh, there are guys making millions of dollars and they are considered all-stars if they get a hit one out of every three times, we'd say, well, that's pathetic. What's wrong with them? It's only because of how we view baseball. So if you could get, if you get a pitcher batting 220 and that's, you know, 70 points higher than what's normally get got from his position, you take 100 it. 100 points higher. Yeah, but what about the 86.2% of the time that pitchers made outs in 2014? I mean, I'm not sure that... Well, there's a lot of what sacrificing. Does that, what they value does that add to the sport? Here's what it adds. It does add more strategy. You have to decide when to pinch hit for a pitcher. It does add more value to the guys who can hit. And like Marginal. with the PAT, it actually has less strategy when because it's like such a given mm -hmm. with... The pitcher's hitting, it's the benefit of, A, being more likely that something interesting will happen, but B, like having this like one spot in the lineup where it's a shitty hitter does actually make it more like strategically robust game. So having it someone who's terrible at playing sport is a good thing so for So you're anti-whimsy is basically what you're saying. Not anti-whimsy. Yeah. There's plenty of whimsy in baseball without a pitcher hitting 0095. Right, quick. What's a whimsical thing in baseball? Go. There you go. Wearing your hat backwards. Very whimsical. <laughs> All right. Let's, Edinson Volquez wearing the <laughs> spring training hat instead of the world championship hat. <laughs> and our final question is from Jeannie Hay from Biddeford, Maine, who's got a beef, or maybe it's a boof with us. I'm calling to take you guys to task for your on-air treatment of Sepp Blatter. I've enjoyed the coverage of the FIFA scandals, the corruption, the wild spending, the selling of votes, and all of that. But every time you mimic his spoken English, I just cringe. The guy is speaking in his non-native language for the benefit of English speakers and listeners around the world, and you're mocking him for that? If James Rodriguez or Cristiano Ronaldo were making an effort to speak in English, would you make fun of them? Makes you guys look like really bad American tourists. Otherwise, love the show. Yes, well, I am a bad American tourist because when Sepp Blatter comes to America, he expects full, great treatment. The reason we mock Sepp Blatter for well, his Well, who are you accent, calling we here? <laughs> I would the reason never. I mock Sepp Blatter for his accent is not because he has an accent, because it represents a form of European aristocracy that reflects the true principles or lack thereof of organizations like FIFA and the International Olympic Committee. These organizations have been run by these aristocratic blazers for a century or longer now, longer than a century, longer. And they deserve to be called to task. They are patrician. They are snooty. 
They are elitist and they have been proven to be exceptionally corrupt. And in my mind, that accent is part and parcel of their arrogance and corruption. That accent stands for justice. <laughs> and if you can't mock the American a, way. And if you can't mock a corrupt Swiss football administrator, who can you mock? <laughs> who can you mock? And if Cristiano you, Ronaldo was on the take to that extent, yeah, we'd probably mock him. What do you say to the occasional criticism? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to mince words. Criticism Ouch. that you get from some listeners who say that your Sepp Blatter sounds like Triumph, the insult comic Doug. I accept the criticism. <laughs> it is an honor to be included on the pantheon of greats like Triumph. <laughs> I just called him Triumph. <laughs> First name basis. Triumph, the Triumph is more of an Eastern European. He was based on the uh, creator's <laughs> grandparents who are from, I think, Ukraine. Sep Triumph doesn't say ease. Without the accent, we couldn't have it is not possible and say, and that is the that is the epitome, that is the microcosm of his worldview. If it was just it is not possible, then it would seem like something that he decided wasn't possible. But it is not possible. <laughs> it, it speaks to the remove he has, the lack of a common touch, the high handedness. It is something we will not be changing. Thank you all for the calls. We actually recorded uh, answers to a few more of them, and we will roll them out in the coming weeks. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. And when you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Please become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Julia Karen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Hall of Famer Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.